Okay, welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City, and the summer is wrapping up. It's going fast. It's been a rainy one. We've all been trying to deal with COVID and all that great stuff. Oh, God, great stuff. Not even great, but we're trying to turn lemons into lemonade. <laughs> That's one like that. <laughs> so, on that note, we will say keep drinking lemonade, smile. Because someone loves you. It's like Telly Savalas was saying, Kojak, God loves you. Anyway, we're going back in time, as I always love to do, revere to some of the best in our game. And when I say our game is because I was in, started in his game. He's pre- predecessor to even myself. He was around from when dinosaurs roamed. And I mean dinosaurs, music speaking. Not dinosaurs from... You know, but dinosaurs in the sense of having to create things on the fly, come up with solutions and make dreams possible with very archaic gear in a time that, you know, today everything is one stroke away. You can Google it. In his day, it was like, we must build it or I have to figure this thing out. Don't give me a moment. Like Bob Clearmountain would tell Tom Moulton, I can do it. I can make it. Don't worry. And probably Tom would leave the room or any of those engineers would say, I don't know. We'll figure it out. But anyway, Bob can share that and give us his life. But we're going to turn shortly right now to Bob Clear. Bob Blank. Bob Blank. Who's going? I'm going to say Bob Clearmountain. God forgive me. Bob Blank, who's, they're both all legends, even Bob Blank, Bob Claremountain, but Bob Blank is a huge legend in disco. Oh my God, disco R&B, this is the man. And I want to welcome to the stage, to the show, Mr. Bob Blank. <laughs> I hope I covered as best as I could, Bob. Thank you so much. <laughs> welcome, Bob, all the way from Connecticut. He's here. He's with us. He's with us. Bob, how are you doing, buddy? You okay? I'm doing great. Um, I'm I live in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut now. I have a tiny production studio, which has been pretty inactive. I know we're going to be talking about this stuff back here, which some people might know of records and tape and everything. But I have a pretty uh, a, a, a Pro Tools system, which I'm I'm still using, uh, but. The way uh, the world has been for the last uh, 16, 17 months, I haven't really been in front of too many people. And that's, I know this sounds crazy, but that's sort of the best part of the disco era, is we were all working with musicians and arrangers and singers, and we were all interacting, and it was all happening live. And like you said, when we would, <clears throat> we would go in the studio if you didn't like that guitar part, then we had to record it again. It wasn't like we'll just edit it and change all the notes. So it was a different time, but I personally think that they were really great times. But I'm great. Life is good. And going, you're still healthy, with us strong, and rolling along, right? That's all you can say. Like Don Rogers says, a good day above ground is a good day. Another day. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... You know, as everybody knows, let's get right into it because you got a story that goes for gener- a full generation and probably longer than that. For some, it's a lot older than some of the people that watch the show. But we need to start with, you know, how does music find the young, the young Bob Blank, you know, the kid 
from there you could take us, you know, paint that story the way you know. Well, uh, this sounds crazy, but when I was a little kid, I had an uncle and he would bring the kids things. And he lived in New Jersey, in Elizabeth, New Jersey. He'd bring us records. And while this guy who looks like this was there, he, my uncle owned a lot of uh, black bars in the city of Elizabeth, New Jersey. The first records I heard were uh, James Brown, B.B. King, these kind of uh, R&B, early R&B things. And of course, I was exposed to everything else on the Ed Sullivan show, all this, you know, the pop music of the time. But I really was listening to all that. When I, um, when I was a teenager, if you want to put up uh, number 11, picture number 11, this is me on the left with Michael Altschuler uh, in Michael's father's basement. And I think I'm 16, 15, 16 at the time. And as you can see, we're, we're doing a recording session. And uh, Michael's father was uh, a promo person at Columbia Records. And we were very encouraged to do all this, to use his basement to make records. And uh, this is where I started doing this, uh, basically right to two track. Time moves on. Uh, I moved to the, is this, is this too tedious by the way, Letty? Not at all. You take it. I totally get it. I, and everyone who's here is soaking in like a sponge. Come on, everybody, get your pen and papers out, write notes. <laughs> okay. So anyway, there I am. Um, Woodstock happens. I'm 18. I moved to the Southwest. Um, and I start, uh, I, at the time I was uh, a guitarist and I started playing in bands in the Southwest and, uh, performing, uh, in backup. We backed up people, um, like Bo Diddley, people who came through town. And uh, I started understanding music. I was I produced uh, a band uh, out there called Fast Eddie, and uh, we tried to make records. There's a picture. Um, this is you'll find this pretty funny if you look at number nine. So this is this is that this is me in the in 1970. Uh, Ready to ready to hit New York as a guitarist, and uh, that's was that your, was that you like your Eric Clapton, Derek and the Dominoes look at the time? <laughs> Cream? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hippies didn't really uh, have much going style wise, so this was me. <laughs> so anyway, I moved to New York, and um, I'm living in the Kenmore Hotel, which was a flop house on 23rd street and walking around town with my guitar. <clears throat> and, uh, I got a job. My <clears throat> first professional job was a place called Sanders recording studio. Sanders recording studio was, if you remember New York from those days, 48th street was called music row cross. We were across the street from Manny's upstairs uh, and downstairs down the block with Sam Ash, all these music. So we had a little studio on the second floor, uh, walk up and I was the engineer. And, uh, in fact, that's where, where I met Richie Ash, who is now billionaire, I guess, but he had a band and we all recorded and did all this stuff. So we were in, uh, Sanders recording studio and I was working with people like tiny Tim and, uh, artists like that <clears throat> make a long story short. 
there I am. I'm going, I, I can do this. I can do this. <clears throat> Finally, I get a job as a, as a session player. I, I go in, it's for a commercial. So I walk in with my guitar and this is relevant to the disco era. So I go, I go in there and I'm, I'm walking in. I got this. I got this. What can it be? It's 30 seconds or, or 60 seconds. It's only 12 bars. I sit down. I see music. Next to me is Eric Gale and another guitarist. Eric Gale is pretty well-known guitarist at the time. And I'm sitting there going, okay. All of a sudden, the conductor says, do it. Bam. Everybody's playing perfectly. It sounds amazing. I'm still trying to figure it out. I realized at at that time, I have another path to follow. I wind up getting a job at a place called Delta Recording Studio, which at the time was an eight-track studio in the Palace Theater building, Palace Theater uh, on 47th Street and, and, uh, and Broadway. And Palace is still there. So this, and the story accelerates from here. Here's a, if you look at uh, picture number 12. So this is me in, uh, in the early 70s. I'm sitting at a little console and I'm filling out an invoice, I guess, but uh, another picture from that time. So let's see if I can show oh, Bob, can I Can I stop you? Can you yeah. tell us which console that is that you're writing on? Is that, is that MCI? Who is that console? You no, know, this, um, a, a, this is a company called Audio and Designs. And at the time, this console was made. It was They were all custom. You want to hear the specs of the console? It was a, it had uh, eight outs, and uh, there were, I think, uh, 20 faders. Uh, different than the consoles that are made today, which are one and a half inch wide faders. I'm sorry to get so technical, which if you put out your hands, you can, if you stretch out 10 hands, 10 fingers on your hand, you can reach a bunch of faders. This thing was a little too wide for that. And they soon abandoned this two and a half inch spacing. Console is pretty rudimentary. <clears throat> But it was custom built for the studio. And there's another picture of me at that console, uh, if you look at number 10. Yes. So this is me in a promo that was done. Well, obviously, I'm not standing with a bank of tape machines behind me, but the picture on the left is me at this console. And like I said, it was pretty rudimentary. You know, if you wanted to move five things at once, you placed your hands over it. We used to have a a, a, a trick where if we had three or four tracks to move, we'd tape a pencil to them so we could move them all at once. So it was pretty basic. We had a Scully eight-track machine. The uh, the chief engineer at the time was Dominic Costanzo, who's still around and one of the top guys in our industry as far as technology. And uh, I remember the day they put in a 16-track. All of a sudden, we have 16 tracks to record on. It's pretty primitive. The studio was really pretty well known as a low-end studio for Latin music. And one of the first sessions I did, I worked with an artist called Louis Ramirez, and the producer was a guy named Bobby Marin. So Bobby Marin uh, was a uh, producer for United Artists, and we started started making records, and... Uh, <clears throat> It was, I just was working with all the Latin musicians in New York, which, by the way, that is what New York is, Latin music, R&B, and especially at that time. 
So one day Bobby comes in and says, you know, what's really happening now? Disco. And he says, I got an idea. So he pulls, um, he says, do you remember the song to be with you by Joe Cuba sextet? And I said, well, it's a little before my time, but I'm a record collector. Sure. I remember 1961. It was a New York hit. It's a ballad. Do you remember this song, Lenny, as a ballad? It was really do Is it on the same album as Bang Bang? Bang Bang. Antico Records, right? You got it. You got it. You know yes. what? I'll tell you why, everybody. My mother used to play it. That's how I know. Because my mother's Puerto Rican. So I remember hearing that album. But I'm saying, is that got to be the same with the front cover? They're all standing together. I can't believe it. I'm actually remembering this. As you're saying it, I'm going, it's got to be on that album. That's exactly. Well, the lead singer. Tico. Yeah. yeah. So, Jim, you know, one day you should have Bobby talk, come on and talk about Latin music in New York. It's an amazing thing. But what happened with us was he said, well, the lead singer from Joe Cuba Sextet, Jimmy Sabater, he's around. And this, we did this, this song in 1961, everybody in New York, it's like a, a thing. Why don't we do a disco version of that song? So uh, he called his, uh, his arranger, uh, Chico Mendoza, who is, uh, if you know who that is, right now he's still, I think he's still uh, head of professor of music department in, in, uh, uh, in New Jersey at, uh, at a college there. And uh, Chico... Uh, comes in and says, well, we're good. yeah, sure. Starts writing. Just to let you know how, how this works, back in the day, we had 16 tracks. So you have to figure out, you have to plan this. You know, it's not like you can do 12 takes of something or you have 20 tracks of drums. So we bring in, uh, brings in a live band. We're doing the music. They're playing, they're playing. Is this really good? This is really good. We, all of a sudden, we run out of tape. The song is, he wrote a seven-minute arrangement. And I'm like, take one, okay, go again, take two. Tape has like 30 minutes on it. We ran out of tape. Wind the tape back. We're on, then we go on to take one. <clears throat> and um, all the players on that, uh, are they're all superstars in the Latin field, but they're all being paid at you know, to play this. Nicky Marrero was the timbal player. I, I don't remember everybody on it, but it was a nutty session. And we recorded that. And uh, of course there were, it's disco, it's 1975. Strings, they come in, you know, they're coming in to do it. Uh, oh, a Gretchen Studier came in and sang all the backgrounds. Jimmy came and sang his part. Um, it, we pulled it together and that was one of the first disco records of that era in the New York scene. Can I ask you a technical question? Yeah. From an engineer standpoint. Okay. You have 16 tracks. I mean, you have a whole bunch of microphones, you mic up the drums, you have your bass and you're tracking. How many tracks were being used for your drums on your tape? Because you have a full kit, you know, and strings and everything. So, so people can understand that because you're dealing with a lot there. Having the, you know. Yeah. And, and this is, <clears throat> this is, this is how recording was done in the early seventies. The, the style had just changed 
from having a, a nice, big, live, lively sounding room. So at the time, I, I'm, I've been recording Latin bands, and we had what we call gobos, which were dividers keeping every all the all the sound apart and we had just started recording 16 track in fact one of the first records we made in that studio 16 track was charanga 76 um we did their first album and you're smiling do you know who i'm talking about okay so yeah those are known. David Mancuso made some of those songs very famous overnight. That's why I'm laughing. <laughs> I know. Go ahead. Okay. So, and once again, Disco Maniacs, we're getting to the, the meat of the story, but to record Charanga, Charanga is a, is, is a light rhythm section, two violins, two singers in unison, and a flautist. And he plays all through it. So how do you record that in a room where pretty much everything's recording? I would record them. I would put the two singers in the lounge because it was night. They would, there was a little window. They were in, in our front lounge next to the water cooler. The flute player would play. We ran a long line into another studio. We had two studios to record him live and recorded all this stuff, which is very, very, you know, it was like the, the, the style of the day was isolation. So to be with you, stereo drums, of course, that was it. We had stereo drums. We had a bass drum in the center, snare in the center. I put mics on the side. Um, two tracks for drums, bass, guitar. Uh, two tracks for percussionists because we had a conguero and a timbal player. Um, and then we had a track for overdubs. I'm trying to remember. I get credit for remembering this stuff. Um, so with the singer on, she sang. Uh, she tripled herself. We bounced that down singer sound so it's pretty simple uh in order to mix it it was like turn everything up make adjustments and record it so the what the interesting thing was i don't know if back in the day it was so new to do a 12 inch disco version they called me they called me up because i'm supposed to know in the afternoon they're at frankfurt wayne mastering labs which was uh, a cutting room and this was at the beginning of, of the disco era. And they said, okay, well, it's 12 inch. What speed? Really? What speed? Yeah, we can do it at 45. It's going to be much louder and bigger. Or we'll do it at 33 as a 12 inch. So I said, 45. Record comes out. It sounds great. It's instantly obsolete. Nobody's playing 45 in, 45 RPM, 12 inches. But if you look at the original record, it's 45 RPM. And uh, at the time, the other the, the the other engineer besides me and Dominic, uh, his brother, the brother of the other engineer, is also named Dominic. And um, his name escapes me, but he was the chief engineer at Frankfurt Wayne. And he was the guy sitting there with all the stuff. Show you how primitive, primitive it was. He had a little Radio Shack five-line um, five fader uh, EQ. And he would do things like turn up 10K, turn down this. It was, like, it was like something you'd have in your house you bought for 75. That was mastering at the time. So the record came out good. If you listen to it today, it came out on Mary Lou Records. And um, it sold well. It was really well. So 
there I am. I did this. That was when I first met John Morales, by the way. John uh, came in. He was hanging out. He knew all the guys, and he was advising us on how to mix the record. Amazingly enough, after that session, he immediately moved to the background. And if you know John's story, he was involved in millions of recording sessions. He would literally show up at the end, three in the morning, just sit there. All right, let me know. Let me know. Okay, you guys done? And he'd jump on the console and make a mix. That's how that's where all his mixes came from. But at the at the time he was like, Yeah, yeah, it could be more of this and that. The uh the drummer of the uh the drummer for this was Mickey Sevilla, who eventually turned wound up with the Savannah band and they were friends and so anyway, the record comes out. And we're thinking we're hot stuff. I don't know if I can use the S word on this. We were pretty hot. And so I'm starting to realize that I could do some cool things. So I went into the office and I said, you know, um, I'd like to make more records. And the, the owner at the time, they were making a lot of money on industrial things and things like that. And while we all loved Latin music, uh, he, was, he didn't see a future for the studio doing a lot of music. We could make as much money during per hour recording one announcer doing a commercial. So this is what you do when you're 22. You say, too bad. I'm going I'm to open my own studio. I'm going to do all this stuff. Um, I, want, I was night um, working. So I'm working nine to five at the studio at night. I would go out to a studio in uh, Jersey City owned by a guy named Les Lido, which the studio, I don't know, if, uh, is pretty infamous. He wrote a song of, called Cotton Candy. He won a Grammy for it as uh, uh, he wrote for um, uh, Al Hurt. It was the follow-up to Java. And he's a, he's a songwriter. I can't remember the other things. He was uh, barely four feet tall. Uh, crazy. He was crazy guy. He had this little studio and we were in there. He had what was called a 12 track, 12 track one inch. So at night I'd be working with these guys. He shows me in the back room. He says, you know, maybe you should, maybe you should buy this console on this side is an empty console and a pile of parts. I'm an idiot. I said, okay, great. I'll buy it. I bought the parts. I, Paid it off in studio time. <clears throat> it was Fairchild faders and, and stuff. And I just thought, okay, great. This will be great. I'll, I'll, I'll build a console out of it. So I literally by hand wired it, connected it up. A friend of mine and I built op amps and we opened a loft studio um, in uh, Chelsea. And uh, I think I have a pic- I don't have a picture of that console, but if you put up, um, so anyway, there I am. We put it in this console. Um, I have a three-track machine. I turn it into four-track. I start doing demos and stuff. Uh, wind up, wind up meeting a couple of guys from that studio, musicians. They said we'll back you if we open the studio. Now I'm living the back of. Main Street, Blank Tape Studio A in a, in a loft building. So 8 a.m., all the people come into the loft. They're all running the sewing machines and, and everything. I'm waking up. 
I got a recording studio. So picture 13, please. So this is me. This is a little later. Behind me is our four-track Ampex. And Lenny, you know what that means, a four-tracks. Four well, I wanted to know how you, did you change the head? Did you get, who did the head assembly to change it to a four-track? Because that's something you can't make unless you built, unless you, unless you're a genius. I'm curious to see how you did this. Um, at the time, you could buy three-track machines really cheap because they were three-track. And in order to use them, I mean, it was a very primitive cell sync, which is the way you synchronize the tracks, was a switch, toggle switch on it, made a big pop when you used it. <clears throat> and <clears throat> what there was a big business on guys who would take uh, the, the, the assembly, you take it off, unscrew it, send it to them, and they put new heads in. So I then I had to buy a fourth electronics and put it in. Now, at the time, I considered myself fairly handy, and I did all this stuff <clears throat> myself. Um, but at the time, out, wait, wait, hang on, Bob, check out your telephone. Look, the phone next to this with a real a landline phone. Everyone, no cell phones yet. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to tell you a couple of odd things about this picture too. First of all, look at look at my hair. Second of all, next to me is our two track. That's a two track tape machine. Uh, see the little, if you if you look at it up close, there's a little knob where the heads are. And when you rewound and, and fast forward to the tape, you had to manually pull that open. Otherwise, you'd blow your speakers out because it was so simple that it didn't have anything to lift the tape when you rewound. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it was really crazy. To the left of that is our 16-track. We had purchased a 16-track. That's a story I'll tell in a minute. On top of it, this is later in the time than, than uh, in the story, but on top of it is a mono Dolby A processor. Back in the day, you would use noise reduction, and we got a job to put a singer on tape on a, on a, on a project and on 16 tracks, so we rented the Dolby A. <laughs> so we're in there spending a lot of money every day to, to use that. But anyway, yeah, the console was tiny. Uh, we all worked crazy hours. So, all right. So we're um, we're there. My soon-to-be partners purchased with me a 16-track and a Steinway Grand. Now a real studio. We're before, below 42nd Street. Still, nobody will come down. Legit. It was still R&B and Latin, which I loved. But you're your pop musicians. Nobody would go below 42nd Street. They all recorded on the 10th on, on 10th Avenue and uh, on the Upper West Side. Brill, so basically, by the Brill Building, up that way. Brill Building, yes. You would. That's where there were some studios uh, along there. Like I said, I was at the Palace Theater at the time, which is on 47th Street. But the major, the major studios, except for RCA, were over on 10th Avenue in the 40s. Sitting alongside these million-dollar monster studios were all the Latin distributors. And you would drive up 10th Avenue, and to the right would be Tico, and all these record labels would have their distributor, distributors there. Latin music was really backseat, you know, out of the trunk. Here's your records. Give me some money. So anyway, um, <clears throat> put in the 16-track, and... Um, 
started going. I'll never forget the day that we were working at a, a band called Malo. We did Malo's album, and I'm there, and guy calls up, says, well, we're ready. We're ready to come down and convert your machine to 24-track. thinking, cool. So we tell the, the guys, there's a couple of guys, like, go out for lunch. Here's 20 bucks. Pay for lunch. Two days later, the machine has been converted. It's a big joke. You know, it's like, oh, it just everything plugs in. Well, it doesn't really work like that. So we we got 20 to be 24-track. We were able to attract uh, more and more intense clientele. Am I, is everybody's brain exploded by now? Okay, so. <laughs> they, were all, they were all intensely listening. No, no, no. You okay. don't understand something, Bob. Unless okay. you explain this clearly, this doesn't exist to most people. They don't understand. You're doing a great job. Please keep going. Okay. So, if you put up number three, this is uh, the, the record label that, that followed me to my new studio. This is a, 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 a pseudo gold record for Soy by Chiranga 76. And uh, we mixed it. It was on our 16 track and did the whole thing. We were so proud of this. This is first, my first gold record. Even though, if you notice, it's not an RIAA record. Most of the record labels in the disco era did not report accurate sales because if you report you have half a million dollars in sales you've got to pay taxes on it don't miss the rest of this wonderful interview search for part two on the internet and listen to the rest of the story <laughs>